kingdom is spreading, oh, tell ye the story, God's banner exalted shall be. The earth shall be full of his knowledge and glory as waters that cover the sea. Acts chapter 15, verses 36 through 41. Acts 15, beginning in verse 36. Then after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, Let us now go back and visit our brethren in every city where we have preached the word of the Lord, and see how they are doing. Now Barnabas was determined to take with them John, called Mark. But Paul insisted that they should not take with them the one who had departed from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. Then the contention became so sharp that they parted from one another. And so Barnabas took Mark and sailed to Cyprus, But Paul chose Silas and departed, being commended by the brethren to the grace of God. And he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. In our last study in Acts 15, we saw the glorious triumph of the people of Jesus over error and discord by their mutual submission to the will and truth of Christ as manifest in his work among men and established in the Scripture. In the following studies, we explored the implications of other scriptures and of traditional history that after this event, the apostles, now fully enlightened to the intentions of God to make a new people by bringing Jews and Gentiles together to be one new man in Jesus Christ, formally and fully began their fulfillment of the Great Commission by going out into all the world to testify to Him, to preach the gospel, and to establish what it means to be faithful to Jesus as Lord. Now, Luke will focus his attention on Paul exclusively. Why Paul? There's a popular theory in biblical studies that's generated a lot of attention and interest recently that Acts was written by Luke for use in Paul's trial before Caesar to demonstrate that his ministry was not in defiance of Roman rule and that the religion he propounded should be protected under the same decrees that protected Judaism, and that he should not be condemned as an insurrectionist. While certain elements of Acts in its record can be interpreted as support for that position, it does not account for the vast majority of the material, and all the more so when you consider that the Gospel of Luke is connected to Acts as the first volume, Acts 1 and verse 1. I'm not certain what circumstances motivated Luke to undertake this project beyond what he says in his own words to Theophilus, Luke 1, verses 1 through 4. Inasmuch as many have taken in hand to set in order a narrative of those things which have been fulfilled among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word delivered them to us— It seemed good to me also, having had perfect understanding of all things from the very first, to write to you an orderly account, most excellent Theophilus, that you may know the certainty of those things in which you were instructed. I suggest that this preface informs us of Luke's intention not only in writing his gospel, but also in writing Acts. Luke gives us a carefully researched synthesis of testimony to the life of Christ and the history of the early church with an emphasis on the establishment and increase of the kingdom of God on earth. 
Paul, then, is likely his focus because Paul's ministry was one of the most eventful and robust of all the apostles. To use his own language, he labored more abundantly than all the rest, 1 Corinthians 15.10, which, in the end, meant that he preached to a more diverse audience, he encountered more intense opposition, worked more miracles, and embodied the experience of the apostles prophesied by Jesus in Mark 16 and 17 more than all of the others. All the same, that means that we can take the life and experiences of Paul as a model for how the other apostles labored and the sorts of things they endured for Christ as the whole company worked together in various places to lay the foundation of Christ on which the Scripture and the Church would come to rest until the time of the restoration of all things. 1 Corinthians 3, 10-11, and Ephesians 2, 19-22. Furthermore, Luke was an associate and at times even a traveling companion of Paul. While it's almost certain that he knew all of the apostles, or at least most of them, and includes their perspective in his writings, for example, his comments on the work of the Holy Spirit seem to be much more like the preferred language of John than any other Bible writer. Yet all the same, he was more exposed to the life, ministry, and personality of Paul than any of the others, so Paul becomes the main character from here on out. Acts 15.36 says, Then after some days, we do not know exactly how much time elapsed between the Jerusalem conference and this event, it would not seem to have taken a long time, but Luke's choice to leave the exact length imprecise indicates that the phrase is simply a literary tool to introduce a new stage in the narrative. Paul said to Barnabas, Let us now go back and visit our brethren in every city where we have preached the word of the Lord and see how they are doing. Remember that the initial missionary journey was not suggested by Paul or by the other leaders of the church at Antioch. They were busily engaged in work around their own city and their own region when the Holy Spirit said, Separate to me Saul and Barnabas for the work to which I have called them. Acts 13 and verse 2. When we considered that event, we discussed the differences in Paul's function as an apostle and his function as an evangelist. The two offices are not identical in regard to either their authority or their work, but Paul held both of them, and it can be very difficult at times to discern whether in a given situation he is acting as one or the other. I have not been able to develop a consistent rubric for settling that question as of yet, but it is one of my goals in this study. And the observation of Moses Lard, which we shared in our analysis of Acts 13, seems to hold up. When Paul was functioning as an apostle, the Spirit of God would intervene and direct his course through revelations. However, when Paul was functioning as an evangelist, he was left to his own ideas and opinions and governed only by the same standards of loyalty to the express will of Christ as every other disciple seeking to carry out a task. So here, it was not the Holy Spirit said, but Paul said to Barnabas, Let us now go back and visit our brethren in every city where we've preached the word of the Lord and see how they're doing. This suggestion was born out of Paul's mind and heart, but it was very much in keeping with the will of Christ and based on his explicit command to teach those who had been baptized to observe all things that Jesus commanded, Matthew 28.20, 20, 
as well as the command to love one another as Christ has loved us, John 13, 34-35. Christian love is not merely abstract, but practical, and it produces a real relationship between those who are Christ's. The relationship between believers is described in Scripture as the brotherhood, 1 Peter 2, 17 and 5, 9. The brotherhood is not an organization or a super-congregational political entity. It is a fraternal spirit between God's children that manifests free but thoughtful association between Christians who know one another and have confidence in one another. So in Luke's record of the life and work of Paul, we see his practical brotherhood, the community within which he functions as a disciple of Christ, consisting of those who helped bring him to Christ and those who he helped bring to Christ himself. He had a sense of responsibility to them and a relational foundation from which to return to them as a teacher and protector over and again. While his apostolic work was ultimately universal in its scope, that is, Paul is our apostle as much as he was an apostle to any church in the first century, and he was as much an apostle to one church in the first century as he was to another in another part of the world, his evangelistic work seems to have been limited to his practical brotherhood. It was reasonable further that he should be concerned for the welfare of these congregations because he had already heard about the havoc the Judaizers brought against the congregations in Galatia, and he had sent an epistle to them to address those issues. Surely he wanted to check on the status of those churches as well as to make sure that others had not been similarly attacked by the promoters of a false gospel. Verse 37, Now Barnabas was determined to take with them John, called Mark. But Paul insisted that they should not take with them the one who had departed from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. When Paul and Barnabas returned from their first trip back to Jerusalem, from Antioch, to deliver the relief money in anticipation of the coming famine, Luke says they returned with John Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, in tow. Specifically, he says they took Mark with them, 12 and 25, the same language used here. Then in 13.5, Luke says that when they left Antioch for their first missionary journey, they took Mark with them again as their assistant. We previously considered how this language describes the primitive method of developing evangelists. Mark's accompaniment of Paul and Barnabas was not merely for travel, but for training. Whatever his assistance to them consisted of, it was carefully structured to prepare him to do the same kind of work in the future. In Acts 13.13, Luke says that after they finished their tour of Cyprus, John Mark did not continue with them into mainland Asia, but he returned to Jerusalem from the city of Perga. Luke does not explain why, nor does he report any problem being caused by this departure, nor does he indicate that any wrong was done. But here we discover two things about that incident. First, it disrupted John Mark's training. He did not return to Jerusalem as a part of his work or preparation as an evangelist or because he had completed it, but rather in rejection of it, so that even Barnabas agreed that he still needed to be taken along to receive further instruction. 
Related to this, the second thing we learn in the account in Acts 15 is Paul's attitude toward the situation. Paul considered Mark's departure a very severe infraction. He even uses the term apostasy. The New American Standard Version says that Mark deserted the others and did not go on in the work. It's not likely Paul meant that Mark had abandoned Christ and was not a true disciple, but he did feel that what Mark had done disqualified him from becoming an evangelist and receiving training for the same, at least so far as receiving Paul's help or being involved in his work was concerned. In no place does Luke tell us why Mark left, but this has not kept scholars from offering suggestions. Some suppose that Mark had become jealous for his cousin, who had ceased to be regarded as the leader of the missionary company. Others think he was frightened of how dangerous the journey was becoming as they planned to travel through the bandit-infested Pisidian highlands. Others think that if it was true that Paul contracted malaria and had to take time to recover, as many scholars suggest from other evidence, the journey was taking longer than Mark had initially supposed it would, and he left because he felt it had become more than he had first agreed to do. It may have been one of these issues, or perhaps something else. Barnabas, if he had ever been angry at Mark, had moved past it and felt that it was time for a second chance. But Paul strongly disagreed. Verse 39, Then the contention became so sharp that they parted from one another. The New American Standard Version suggests that there was a particular dispute or an argument at some moment in time that brought about the end of Paul and Barnabas's working relationship as evangelists. Some suggest that the unshakable determination of the two of them might have led to a painful revisiting of Mark's behavior, or even Barnabas's hypocrisy when he and Peter had compromised during the work in Antioch, and perhaps on Barnabas's part, a revisiting of how the church had treated Saul when he was first converted, but Barnabas had advocated for him to help work out his acceptance. That would have made for some intense and emotional conversations, and it's frankly surprising that the Apostle Paul would not be more gracious to Mark considering his own past, but perhaps he knew more than we do as modern readers. We will have more to say about this in just a moment. Verse 39 continues, And so Barnabas took Mark and sailed to Cyprus. When Luke recorded the ministry in Cyprus in Acts chapter 13, there was no record of a baptism or the establishment of any congregations there. Luke did say the proconsul of Cyprus, his name was Sergius Paulus, believed, and generally that refers to becoming a follower of Christ, but if that had been the end of the record, we would suppose that the ministry on that island was not especially effective. Perhaps it wasn't. Barnabas was a native of Cyprus, so it is possible that Instead of revisiting established congregations, as Paul had suggested, now that he and Paul were going separate ways, he and Mark would try again to evangelize the island and build on the foundation they had laid by their ministries some years earlier. Verse 40, But Paul chose Silas. Remember that Silas was one of those who had been sent with Paul and Barnabas from Jerusalem after the conference to testify about the conclusions they had reached there and to support the veracity of the letter they sent. He'd possibly returned to Jerusalem. If so, maybe he had recently traveled back with Mark, or he may have lingered in Antioch. 
Whatever the case, Paul became impressed with him and felt that he would be an asset in his work. And they departed, being commended by the brethren to the grace of God. Again, the New American Standard Version better captures the idea when it says they were committed to the grace of God. And this likely involved another ordination ceremony for this journey, similar to the one we saw in Acts 13, with prayer, fasting, and the laying on of hands. And he went through Syria and Cilicia, that is, rather than sailing, he traveled over the mainland, strengthening the churches. We have not heard of churches in this region before, but it is possible that they were established by Paul himself. In fact, it's likely, since he is now visiting them, that would mean they are a part of his practical brotherhood. If so, he may have established them during the period between his initial departure from Jerusalem and Barnabas fetching him to assist in the Antioch work. Now, this is in many ways a very difficult section in Acts. We have the inclination to defend our heroes. Paul and Barnabas are both heroes to every Christian. But this time they were on opposite sides against one another. So who do we support? Luke does not answer that question, and there does not seem to be enough data given here or elsewhere to reach a strong conclusion. We must remember that the infallibility which the Spirit granted the apostles in their teaching did not mean that they could not make mistakes. We have already seen that on many occasions their own understandings of matters were problematic and sometimes seriously flawed. We saw Paul having to withstand Barnabas and Peter because they were to be blamed. So it might have been Paul or Barnabas who was the problem here, or perhaps it was both of them. It's very difficult to conclude that their decision to part ways was spiritually motivated or the right thing to do. I do not think that the mere record of this event is sufficient to serve as an example, as though God is teaching us through this account how to handle disputes and endorsing contentious division of some sort. Instead, it seems that Luke includes this account to explain why Barnabas was not with Saul in his future travels, and, perhaps even more importantly, to demonstrate that even in the face of human frailties, failures, and fighting, God is able to make his kingdom grow. Out of this event, two regions became further evangelized. Two new evangelists were trained. And in the end, these men showed themselves to be true followers of Christ in whom the Spirit of God was working to bear his fruit, because in the letters of Paul, which became a part of New Covenant Scripture, we learn that eventually he did reconcile with Barnabas, 1 Corinthians 9, 6, and he came to see Mark as a valuable minister of the gospel, Colossians 4, 10, Philemon, verse 24, and 2 Timothy 4, 11. In God's merciful wisdom, he has chosen not only to redeem us, but to work through us for the redemption of the world, and all happens in concert together. Only an almighty God could accomplish something like this. Thanks for listening to Verse by Verse. I'm Clinton DeFrance. I'm a Christian Bible student and evangelist from Tulsa, Oklahoma, and this podcast is made available by the Congregation of Christians of which I am a member in East Tulsa. 
please come meet us if you have the chance. You can learn more about us at our website, TulsaChurchOfChrist.com. Our music is from Andrew Martin, a very talented Christian brother in the Dallas-Fort Worth area of Texas. You can check out his SoundCloud for more beautiful and uplifting productions from him. For news, articles, previous episodes, or to request a Bible study or a lecture series with me, visit vbvpodcast.com. Please subscribe to the podcast and give us a good review if you enjoy the studies. God bless and have a great week. From all the dark places of earth's heathen races, oh, see how the thick shadows fly. The voice of salvation awakes every nation. Come over and help us, they cry. The kingdom is spreading, oh, tell ye the story. God's banner exalted shall be. The earth shall be full of his knowledge and glory as waters that cover the sea. With praising and singing and jubilant ringing, their arms of rebellion cast down. At last every nation, the Lord of salvation, with glory their effort shall crown. The kingdom is spreading, oh, tell ye the story, God's banner exalted shall be. The earth shall be full of his knowledge and glory as waters that cover the sea.